Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. If Jesus Christ was just a great teacher, then it would seem that Satan went after a fly with an elephant gun. You do not demonically inspire leaders to slaughter children to try to get at Moses for no reason. Deliverance is coming. And you do not demonically inspire another leader a couple thousand years later to try to slaughter Messiah unless deliverance is coming. See, Herod didn't actually stand to lose anything with the birth of Jesus. It wasn't about him. It was about the kingdom of darkness. Brothers and sisters, Christmas is precious, but it's not nearly as cute as you and I think it is. When our brother John wrote the Christmas story in the book of Revelation, he said it was a dragon trying to consume a baby and its mother. Christmas is nothing short of an invasion. The reason we celebrate it is because it was light invading the darkness, not the other way around. Darkness already invaded the light. We did that, Genesis 3. And we got two-thirds of the Bible showing us all that flows out from that. Are we having fun yet? By the end of Malachi, are we having fun? No. No. I'm, I'm thrilled that Malachi ends the Old Testament. You bring gifts like this, lambs that are maimed, deformed, you give this to God, this is how good you're doing at being good. I really need to save you from you. It's a good thing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are next. I'm so glad the scriptures don't end at Malachi. If you're really good at being good, awesome. Gregory's not. Gregory's really, really excited that God decided to save us from us. Talk to me. What do you see? Overachiever. (laughs) Some things are hidden in plain sight, aren't they? In some ways, this is an image of this entire series. Jesus, trying to, me trying to make the case to you that Jesus' coming was a transformational event, a transformational intention on what Jesus had in mind, what a triune God had in mind for humanity, specifically his church, that he wanted to fundamentally change everything about us and our experience with God, our experience with each other, our experience with his spoken word, For those of us who grew up in church, what we're talking about today is hidden in plain sight. And here's what I mean. I tell you guys every great once in a while, excuse me, I tell you that I'm going to assert something and I'm not even going to use a scripture verse. And I tell you that's when you're supposed to get worried. Amen? Don't let people assert things without scripture verses. Today, I am saying something that is so blatantly broad and obvious that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four tell us 
everything I'm talking about today. Another way of saying that is, instead of getting our nose down into the text and going line by line, we're going to stand back a bit at all four of those Gospels. Does that make sense? So when I come up here, when I studied history at Sac State, one of the rules was if you can find it in 10 sources, you don't have to cite it. It's called common knowledge. So I did not need to write a paper that said, and when I said, and Abraham Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth, I didn't need to put a footnote at the end of that sentence because everybody that's written a book about Abraham Lincoln has written that he was shot, right? Okay. Today is one of those sermons. I'm not giving you any scripture passages when I tell you that Jesus called disciples, he led them, he taught them, he showed them the kingdom of God, he died for them. I'm not, it's all there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you're new to the Bible, those four. And then the rest of the New Testament spends a lot of energy extrapolating, now what does it mean that he came and saved us, okay? So we're gonna stand back from all four gospels and I hope really find, ask ourselves key questions about how transformative it is that Jesus did not come to earth, write a book, start a blog, go on Oprah, and get to five million Twitter followers, and become this kind of a, a shaman of types that has all his cool things, and we just, right? He didn't do that. Today's way of becoming a rabbi is so unbelievably individualistic and heaven help us, Twitter's not helping anything because it's taken the word follow and it's dragged it through the mud. I follow Jesus on Twitter, which means nothing. If I follow somebody on Twitter, I may or may not even see all their tweets, let alone am I in a relationship with them that provides accountability, encouragement, strength. Jesus did not come and make disciples in this weird sense of I get a li- I, you know, something they say hits my inbox once a week or I read his book once. That's not what he did. He took 12 men, some of the least likely, and he invited them into life-on-life, 24-hour-a-day relationship and spent... Some, some would argue, the extroverts of the world would argue, way too much time with these 12 guys. Right? If you've read the Bible before, you've seen the number of times where Jesus is leaving a town and the needs are just starting to pile up. Jesus, how are you leaving? How are you doing this? You healed three or four people and that was awesome, but now these really big crowds are coming. Jesus, you could have a mega church. You need to stay here and do your thing, Jesus but he's off to the next town and he's not by himself. There are 12 that are with him, hot on his heels because that's their job. That's what a disciple is. And we need to take a look and ask ourselves, this sounds silly, but it's critical. Jesus' ministry choices 2,000 years ago, do they or do they not bear weight on Jesus' followers 20 centuries later? You guys know where I'm going, right? This is hidden in plain sight. Of course, but I'm not sure that we always stop and take a deep breath and just look right there at how Jesus did ministry. So let's do this. Here's our big idea. This is in your notes, and it is so big and hairy and long with a few fill-in-the-blanks that I didn't even put it on the screen. I just said the big idea. So you note-takers, grab your pen. 
This is our central idea for the day. Jesus showed that he came, amongst other reasons, he came to transform you into a maturing disciple. When? When did he show that that's one of the reasons he came? When he called disciples, led them, taught them, spent most of his time with them, prayed with and for them, trained them, gave them his Holy Spirit, and commissioned them to make more disciples. Your blanks, maturing, led, and taught. Maturing, led, and taught. If we were wondering whether part of the Christmas agenda was for the God-man to come and make maturing followers of himself, if we're wondering whether or not that was a big part of his agenda, maybe he answers the question when he starts his ministry by calling 12 to come follow him, spends all of his time with them, leads them, teaches them, The Bible says explicitly a number of the stories we hold really precious here 2,000 years later, some of these things, and especially the explanations of them, he only said to the 12. That's really tough if you're a millennial, because I was raised to think I'm a snowflake and we're all equal and every... That's not fair. Jesus, how could you tell the 12 of them something you didn't tell me? Or even hanging out with Peter, James, and John. He told things to those three He didn't show all 12 his glory in Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John got to see that. Well, Jesus, I don't like this. That's not very fair. Jesus would have made a terrible kindergarten teacher. That's not fair at all. Well, the fact of the matter is he did it. He invested a ton of time and life and energy into 12, and in case we were worried that Jesus only loves 12 people and he doesn't love everybody else, a couple of thoughts. One, he, with those 12, he serves alongside them, preaching to the masses and healing people, amen? He does all kinds of teaching about the kingdom of God with thousands of people on a hillside. But you know what we never think about that's really, really important? Do you think that as 5,000 people plus listen to him say, blessed are the poor in spirit... You know Peter's standing right here, right? Learning how to preach. You ever go through the book of Acts and go, where did Peter learn how to preach? Peter, did you go to seminary? Well, I listened to God preach for three and a half years. In case you're wondering, does Jesus only love 12 people? Oh no, Uh uh-uh. All 12 are going to play a pivotal role in God's plan to redeem humanity. One played a role that none of us would want to play. And the other 11 died for their Savior eventually. Or were almost killed in a vat of oil and survived it. Jesus, it seems understood what Jethro said to Moses. Moses, you're going to wear yourself out. You've got all of Israel coming to you to get their needs met. You need to get them in groups of tens and fifties. You see how many times Jesus has to withdraw to pray? You know Jesus slept, right? Jesus ate. He was limited. But in his unlimited wisdom of a deity, he invested himself in 12, and he said to the 12, 
make more. It's 2020, and if you love Jesus Christ right now, today, as you listen, you were told the gospel by somebody who was told the gospel by somebody who was shared the gospel by somebody who was told by someone who was told by someone who was told by someone who saw Jesus. You are a part of a long chain of God's legacy. You are, in his, you are his inheritance, you know that, right? Hebrews says that Jesus was able to scorn the cross, looking past the pain and the suffering for the joy that was set before him of redeeming his church. That's you. And how did he do it? How does he redeem his church? He trains up 12 and he tells them to make more and they do it. So here's what's hidden in plain sight. Brothers and sisters, in the year 2020, are we smarter than God and are we gonna choose a different ministry model? Because we're awfully clever. We really are. We're more clever than 17th century Christians in France. We're more clever than 13th century Christians in Turkey. More clever than 8th century Christians at the outskirts of India. We're more clever than Peter and Paul and Barnabas. We're really clever. We have lots of cool ideas. We have conferences before coronavirus, but we definitely have books and blogs and YouTube channels. We have institutions that tell us how to do these things. But we've got to decide are we smarter than God? Are we smarter than the early church? Are we more clever than what the scripture gives us? So here's how it happens in the year 2020. My friend tells me about following Jesus. And I go, oh, yeah, following Jesus. I remember that cute poem. My grandma had it on her wall. Jesus and I, are gonna make footprints together along a lovely beach during a perpetual sunset. And depending on what our friend tells us, they either allow this image to continue or they love us enough to burst our bubble and say, let me tell you what following Jesus is like. Ripping out things you didn't think he would rip out. I didn't give you permission to change my heart on that matter. I didn't give you permission to change my mind on that matter. Who here saw the movie Fireproof? Anybody see Fireproof? One of the things that was really precious to me, they, didn't, they used it but didn't emphasize it, is that this husband, in trying to save his marriage, he, he slowly realized as he worked and worked and worked and worked to love his wife, he started sacrificing things for her that he never thought he would sacrifice. And so in case you think that you're gonna come home in the Christian life, you come home and you're always upset about what Jesus changed, oftentimes, again, I keep using this analogy, if a 300-pound person who knows exactly what they're doing digs their elbow into that muscle in your back and works it, it's gonna really, really hurt, but they know what they're doing and it's for your good, okay? Jesus is the same way when he rips out something. And this is what following Jesus looks like and that's why our, Caesar, our uh, season's Title for this sermon is A Transformative Christmas, Not a Light Remodeling Christmas. Does anybody, would anybody buy a self-help book that said, your life needs a slight remodel? No, it's always big superlative language, right? The clickbait, transform. And you know what's really sad? 
It's not just that um, these little cute tidbits of advice for life are not necessarily transformational. It's that somebody did come to earth to transform, and so it's a cheap counterfeit. Okay? We're talking this Christmas about a God who wants to fundamentally change you from the DNA up because he loves you so, so much. Before Jesus uh, came and changed me from the DNA up, you know what I was doing? I had grabbed a sword and I was waging war against the only God that ever loved me. That's what I was doing. Some of you can testify, you were there with me, we were all on the same side, but he came for us. And today, part three, our sermon title, Jesus came to make disciples. Jesus came to make disciples. This is what we're talking about today. So here are a few observations, again, that we can look at all four gospels and see clearly this is what he's up to. Number one, Jesus came to form a group of disciples. It should mean something to us that the calling of the disciples was essentially the first thing Jesus did. It wasn't all in one moment. There was, okay, here's a miracle and here's a little bit of this, but essentially at the very beginning, the calling of the 12 is one of the very first things that Jesus does. He says, follow me, be like me, okay? Now, this is gonna be, for those of you who are really hands-on people, this is gonna be super practical sermon. We're gonna talk a lot about doing. If Jesus' ministry model is better than ours, we need to joyfully obey. Let's jump in and do what he does. So when we see that Jesus is forming a group of disciples, I'm happy to tell you that ARCF is doing the same thing. We are right now working to form groups of disciples. And because Pastor Greg's really clever, he called them disciple groups. Oh my gosh, the cleverness. It's just off the charts. Wow. Obeying, can we agree? The word of God is just like damning to the human soul if we won't obey it, right? Would that be terrifying to hear God speak and then do nothing with it? Okay, so... If Jesus makes disciples, and he does so in groups that spend time together intentionally, that doesn't mean that an ARCF is gonna do an A-plus job the first time we try. Okay, we've been trying here for a couple of years, and we're always seeking to get better and to get better. So I don't want you to think that, you know, this is tantamount to the voice of God. I'm not trying to say that. But we are trying to humbly follow what Jesus has shown us, okay? So there's this neato sign over your left shoulder that says, sign up here. Everybody look over your left shoulder. It says sign up here. That is the place you go to sign up. And there we've got the sign up sheets for winter groups. The winter groups are gonna be January, February, March for 12 weeks. And we've got the teachers on there and we've got the hosts and I'm going to be frank. I know it's odd because you, know, you think I'm Greg, but right now I'm frank. Because of coronavirus, um, the amount of people in a group, and some groups, in my opinion, need to be on Zoom, in my opinion, we probably should have three more groups than what we have currently on those sign-up lists because we need to create space. We need to be comfortable with groups being smaller numbers of people, if possible, and uh, some of you guys at home are probably thinking right now, there's no way I would join a group unless it was digital. Um, so I want to put forward to you, 
because I don't know that I have done it very often and I apologize. Um, you can do that. Um, if you have a living room, you can host a group. Or if you have a den or a back porch with one of those cool gas lamps like they have at BJ's. I'm not saying I've been to BJ's recently. I'm just saying they have those gas lamps. If you have a little living space that could hold eight or nine or ten people, you could host. Some of you could teach. Now, there is a bar. I need you to understand if you want to teach a group, um, you need to have elder approval. So you put yourself forward, come to me, come to one of the elders, and if we're comfortable. And, and the teaching, just so we're clear about that role, you do not have to manufacture content. The, the idea of the teaching leader, of the five leaders that I'm about to talk about, the idea is not that you're a theologian. The idea is that you've been walking with Jesus long enough that you can smell a rat, okay? Somebody says something that's super clearly not okay and you have enough common sense to go, hey, I'm not totally sure about that. And even if you need to check with an elder later, that's totally fine. Maybe you shoot a text message to an elder after a group, but you've got enough common sense, you've been in the word long enough that you could function as a doctrinal safeguard for the group. Okay, it's not, this is not primarily a teaching structure. It's a relationship building structure. It's to give Christians healthy friendships because friendships are how we grow. Yeah, that was worth price of admission right there. Relationships are how we grow. They're how we live out the one another's. But when I tell you, some of you, I just said you could teach a group and you know what you did? This is what you did. Who, me? Okay. There are very few people that I would discourage from hosting a group. Again, if you have a living room, you can host. Um, as it relates to being a teaching leader, everybody's got a little bit different take on what your tenacity was. When you first got saved, were you just tearing through this book? There are people, I've seen them, there are people that led Bible studies within a year of coming to Christ because they didn't just get saved. They like just stayed in this thing. <laughs> and so I'm not gonna put a time limit uh, on like how long have you been a Christian to, to say that time necessarily means maturity because it doesn't, it doesn't at all. But if you believe, you know, if, if two 19-year-olds come to your door who call themselves elders and you can smell a rat, you might be capable. You might be capable. You're like, oh, see, my God served me and died for me while I was still his enemy and your version of Jesus, you have to do stuff before he loves you. Like if that's just intuitive, that's a different Jesus than the one I, like, you're okay, you're good. You could be a teaching leader for one of these groups if you can smell a false gospel, if the book of Galatians makes sense to you. We don't work for our salvation. We work from it, right? Okay, then very briefly, a disciple group running on all cylinders is led by five people, okay? And I'm not gonna go through an exhaustive, uh, but I want you to know that this is an, an attempt to put people's spiritual gifts in play. You can provide leadership, even if you're not interested in teaching the Bible. Maybe you're not gifted that in any way. If you're an evangelist, I'm going to tell you right now, you're the inviter. This person takes uh, personal, I, I am going to get this group to grow if it's the last thing I do. If you naturally invite, you love including others, that's you. If you love vacuuming the floor and putting out some chairs, you're the host. That's you. Don't ask me to do inviting. Don't ask me to teach the Bible. But I'm, I love putting out a, a bowl of apple cider, you know, for the group or the caregiver. I love following up with people a few days after their prayer request and praying for them over the phone. I love finding out 
birthdays and making sure somebody in the group gets a birthday card when their birthday comes up, or the communicator. Um, we're going to make sure that Pastor Greg gets a conversation from the communicator uh, every once in a while. How's the group doing? How's everybody taken care of? Just make sure the groups are connected to each other. Lots of different ways that you could serve in one of these groups. And when the groups meet for the first time, right after New Year's, they'll sit down and have this conversation of who would like to fit which role. The teacher has to be determined by the elders ahead of time, but the other four roles you can fill in as you go. Does that make sense? Say yes. Do you guys agree that many hands make for light work, right? This is how a group fires on all cylinders. When you push out leadership to multiple people, I don't know, the way Jesus did, then it'll work. Second observation from this discipleship model Jesus gave us. Jesus came for us to break bread together. Do you guys believe that? If Jesus and the 12 were together for three and a half years, then how many meals did they eat together? That's a lot. Can we agree that sitting and having a meal is very relationally, it's different than talking about ideas like we do in a Bible study? Those are very different. It's not that one is good and one is bad. They're just different. There's a lot of relationship that happens in three and a half years of Jesus forming the 12 into who they are to me. You show up at a prayer meeting. There are people that you know and love. They're from your church and you know it's a prayer meeting. So none of that surprises you. It's people you know and love. It's a prayer meeting. You show up. But because of circumstances, you walked in a few minutes late and they were already praying. You grab a chair and you sit down. You didn't get a chance to, hi, hello, how are your week? You did not get to catch up at all. Now, these are your friends though. They know you, they love you, but you did not get to catch up. And maybe you haven't seen any of them in three or four days. And over the next half hour, two or three of your friends pray for you. Specifically about what's going on in your life right now with your family or with work or with which sin is really kicking your butt. They pray for the things that are the exact things that are on your heart right now, the things you would have shared if you'd been on time and been able to share. Guys, would you pray for me? They prayed for you as if you had not been late that night. How do you feel? Loved? How else? How do you feel? Connected. Blessed. Cared about. Humble. Right? It's always humbling when somebody's serving us. Accepted. Included. Can we agree part of the definition of an inner circle is that you already know me and you know my junk? Let alone circumstances, you know my junk. You know how to pray for my walk with God because we've been talking about my sins for a while. 
and I know your junk as well. Brothers and sisters, the reason that a disciple group spends 40 minutes sharing a meal before we get into Bible study, before prayer time later, the reason we spend time breaking bread is because it changes the way we study the Bible together later, and it really, really changes prayer time. A group is really firing on all cylinders when you start prayer time and you don't necessarily even have to share. You can, but if you don't share, there are good men and women in that room who already know where you're at and they are going to take you and your needs and your family before the throne of grace with boldness. And it feels good. It feels really, really good. And we get there by breaking bread together. We get there by putting in time together. A meal is just one small rhythm. We all have to eat anyway. It's one small rhythm that makes a group as healthy. Third observation, Jesus came to teach us the scriptures. Again, when he taught thousands of people, Peter was right there, right? James, John, all 12 were right there. They're watching Jesus do ministry, not simply listening to it and consuming it for themselves. It's both. And as they process it and internalize it, they are gonna be what? What's gonna happen in just a few years, right? Could you imagine how terrified you'd be? You're excited that your, your rabbi is raised from the dead. He really is. I knew it. I told you, Peter, I knew it. He's God, Everything's going to be okay now. Do we attack Rome now? And he says, go make more disciples. Whoa, 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 Jesus, come back. Right? How terrified are you? The 11 of you, you're the plan. Go. I'm sen- no, no, no. I'm sending my Holy Spirit. You're not that awesome. I'm sending the Holy Spirit, but you guys are the plan for the rest of the kingdom of God. Like, go make disciples. And he floats up into heaven. So, Who's responsible for teaching the Bible three minutes after Jesus goes up in a cloud? That's right. How terrified would you be if you came to Jesus and you got saved and you get into a Sunday school class and it's a great class and they love each other, whatever, and then your Sunday school teacher that you've been depending on so much for the last three and a half years says, hey, we're moving to Kansas to be closer to the kids. but who's going to teach? I, I taught you for three and a half years, please. Here's your Bible. Go teach others. Start a new class. Go. Do it. You and I are very tempted to think that after three and a half years, we're not ready for something. It's just not true. So, because Jesus came to teach us the scriptures and then commissioned us to go make more disciples, which means we're gonna be doing teaching. There's a reason that the middle portion of a disciple group still does have a Bible study in it. I'm gonna emphasize connection relationally. I'm gonna emphasize prayer, but there's still a Bible study in the middle portion for a reason. And you're gonna see when you get back to that sign-up sheet, um, there are a few different approaches that the elders allow the teaching leader to take. You could pick a book of the Bible. Hey, we're gonna do a Bible study on 1 Samuel. Awesome, that's great. Hey, we're gonna do a Bible study on Galatians. Hey, that's awesome, that's great. Or they could pick a curriculum. Um, 
We were just in a fall group that did a Max Licato study on anxiety and on about trusting God, and that was beautiful. That's, that's a great thing. Um, one thing we've, I don't think, done, but some other churches do, is they have a sermon discussion as their Bible study. Um, that can be really good, especially if you're newer in the faith and you just have to go, hey, that didn't make sense. What do I, you know, and you've got a, a Bible teacher there helping answer your questions just the same way, by the way, the Levites answered questions in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. When Ezra's reading the scripture to thousands and thousands of people, people have questions and the Levites are spread out amongst the crowd, taking questions and helping answer and teaching live. That's cool. That's really, really cool. So that's one option we could do for Bible teaching inside a disciple group. And then last is something I'd like to share with you. It's a bit of an announcement because it's brand new. Um, we're launching something called ARCF University. And what it is, is um, we're going to have at least one disciple group each trimester that is an ARCF University group. And what this is, is this is a nice, slow, relational, what we would back in the day, we'd call a new members class. Okay. So if you're new to ARCF, I want to encourage you to join that group. Uh, I'll be teaching it on Wednesday nights at the Kaiser household. Um, but it is particularly powerful if you've not been a Christian for very long. It's going to be really, really powerful. Um, this first trimester, January, February, March, we're only essentially asking three questions. Um, who is God? Who am I? And how does his cross fill in the gap? The holiness of God my brokenness and filthiness and sin, and how does the cross fill in the gap? Just got some foundational, who is God and what is he kind of doing in the world through this seeking and saving? And so that's all we're gonna do for 12 weeks. Um, so I don't wanna, again, I don't wanna say how long a term that is, but if, if you do not personally, if you don't feel like you've been a Christian very long, really wanna encourage you into that group. Um, or if you've not been at ARCF super long and you're interested, um, that's one of the groups on the sign-up sheet. Here's another practical application for how we can follow Jesus' ministry model. He taught the scriptures, and now we need to teach the scriptures. This is a precious book, The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross, that helps make really clear to our kids, nieces, nephews, grandkids, um, why Jesus came. What was the darkness inside us of sin that he pushed back by dying on the cross for us? And for those of you who are really quick with your Amazon app, put your phone away. Oh, who stole the, who stole the books? You have them? They're behind the door? Don guy's getting fired. All right. Who wants to play Santa's elves? If you have a child in your life that you do or could do nighttime story reading with them at least once a week, I want you to have a copy of this book. We've got 25 of them. There's nothing easier in the whole world than reading your grandson, a book, and it's a precious book, and it's a beautiful one, and we want you to have it. They are, yeah, I want you to know your, your elders care very deeply. They, they found the pennies, and they made it happen, okay? 
A fourth observation from watching Jesus' model of ministry. Jesus came to teach us to pray. Amen? Did he do a lot of teaching us how to pray? Absolutely. Let me tell you a story, and I apologize, this image is so pixelated. If it shows up, I might have lost battery. Oh, Okay, this was so pixelated, I made it smaller to make it less miserable, but to give you a general idea of the size of this room. Could you imagine preaching to thousands and thousands of people in the year 1845? You gotta belt it out. This is exactly what our brother Charles Spurgeon was doing in the London Tabernacle. Huge room. And, you know, times don't really ever change. Pastor Spurgeon was famous because he had big crowds coming and listening. That wasn't the only reason. He was a theological heavyweight, and his books were intense as well. His sermons were intense and and powerful and, I believe, beautiful and Christ-honoring. But when you have a really, really big church, there's no denying people are going to hear about you. So people, pastors in America knew who Spurgeon was, and there was one pastor that um, got on a ship and went over and visited and came in one day, and Pastor Spurgeon met him, and, and greeted him, received him. And, and amidst the tour, like it was a Sunday morning, I guess there was a service going on or whatever. And he said, hey, let me show you the engine room. Now back then, engine was synonymous for boiler. A boiler, this is how you pump some hot air into the room to not freeze during a, a, a London January, okay? And the pastor from America thought it was odd. Why is he gonna show me the boiler and what's the big deal? And he takes him down a set of stairs down beneath the sanctuary that had about 6,000 6, people in it, as I understand. And Pastor Spurgeon opened a set of double doors for this American pastor to then see about 600 saints on this vast floor, every one of them on their face. The boiler room, the engine room of the London Tabernacle was saints that knew Nothing will happen in the mind or heart of the people on the floor above us unless God moves. Some trust in horses. Some trust in chariots, right? We're not doing that. We trust in the name of the Lord our God, okay? This is an example of why prayer must be absolutely integral in the life of ARCF. And everything that we do, part of our connection to each other is being able to and willing to and praying for each other, with each other, amen? Prayer is so silly if God is actually dead. If Nietzsche was right, and even then it was kind of a philosophical statement more than a theological one. If there is no God, this is silly. But since that's not what we believe, we call ourselves Christians and we have this cool book and Jesus' ministry with the 12 is filled with prayer, maybe just... Maybe. And so don't tell anybody. Here's the dirty little secret. I I grew up in a pastor's family, so there's this endless, frustrated discussion amongst pastors of how do I get people to the Wednesday night prayer meeting? How do I get people to the Wednesday night prayer meeting? We can get 100 on Sunday. We can get 170 if we have a barbecue, and we can get five if we have a prayer meeting. How do I get people? So this is the part I don't want you to tell anybody. If you take a third of your small group model and have them pray one-third of the time that they are together, you just duped them into showing up at a prayer meeting. Don't tell anybody, though. 
people will get very upset if they find out, okay? So to say that I want every saint here to spend 40 minutes in a prayer meeting, if I say you're gonna pray for 40 minutes, you're intimidated, right? All of us are. Until we're with friends that we feel deeply connected with and they're praying for us as well as us praying for them, now it's intensely relational, now it's intensely pastoral, and I'm being so blessed by this. This is wonderful. You can dupe somebody into showing up at a prayer meeting. Just don't tell them. Last, running out of time here. Jesus came to commission us to make more disciples. I've essentially already preached this point. Now, this is scary. Uh, I'm gonna make it less scary by using a scientific analogy. Um, A cell divides by making parts that are at the time unnecessary, okay? I want you to imagine just your own physical body. If your body behaved like a cell, your heart would start to duplicate to create two hearts. Your liver would start creating a second liver, right? Your intestines would duplicate to create two intestines because if your body behaved like a cell that's healthy, alive, and receiving the nutrition it needs, your whole body is about to make a twin. Does that make sense? It is so easy if we're not thinking about cell replication to go, you know, you have two people in that Sunday school class who could teach that. and see inefficiency in it. Why do you have two of anything? That doesn't make any sense. You don't need a second one unless you're planning on multiplying, okay? If you're planning on multiplying, you need a second inviter in your group. You need to train somebody to think and behave like an inviter. You need a second caregiver. You need a second host. You need a second of all of these things, not by accident, but on purpose, amen? Because multiplying groups so that there are more seats at the table is a microcosm of what we do here. We all know that if we run out of chairs, we start a second service. Every one of us intuitively knows that. But we forget that the same exact principle applies to groups. When groups have no more seats at the table, we need to be thinking and praying and working hard to have two of everything so that we can purposefully step out and create another group. This is how churches grow. Historically, this has been true for 2,000 years. So I want to ask you, on purpose, before winter groups start at the new year, please pray, think, and plan as a group to send out a new group in May. We're gonna be together for January, February, March. We'll have April off. And by off, I mean we'll have signups at the back again, right? Run a group as if you are planning to launch out a new group in May. This is how churches grow. Amen? All right, did I promise you that was gonna be intensely practical? That was a lot of doing, okay? We have a lot to pray through because again, our central idea is this. Jesus' own behavior reveals how much discipleship is intensely relational, okay? So I'm gonna invite the worship team. Would you guys please come and we're gonna help us respond. We are going to ask ourselves, were these four books of the book, were they a mistake? Okay, because if they were not a mistake, there are practical steps that we're gonna wanna take as individuals, as groups, as a church family to do life together really, really well. 
so that everybody gets cared for, everybody gets loved, everybody gets taught the gospel, everybody gets prayed for, amen? I need a little testimony because I know I'm gonna get some hands up. Who recently, just in the last few months, who's received a really beautiful text message or phone call from somebody that they were able, they knew to text or call you because you were in group together and you'd shared? Right, okay? Texts and phone calls and other, you know, getting coffee together, what have you, this stuff proliferates as we become friends, as we develop good friendship for the glory of God and for our own growth to his glory. Um, During this response time, I wanna let you know that you are free to respond in a number of ways. You can sing with the saints and just enjoy the goodness of God. You can pray. You can take steps. Some of you need to take that book and say, if discipleship involves teaching, how, how am I gonna talk to my grown child? I don't have a relationship with my granddaughter right now that I have a bedtime with her once a week or I don't have a story time with her, but I know that I need to. And maybe you need to pray about that right now. Lord, how are you gonna open this door so I can share the gospel with my grandchild? Uh, whatever your step of obedience is, um, some of you, and I'll tell you right now, you guys still think I'm joking, but I'm not. I would love it if you'd walk back to the sign-up table and sign up for a group during this song. This is not about singing. This is about responding. Amen? Joy-filled obedience. Let's do it.